Hello, gorgeous people, and welcome to another TV Central one-on-one podcast. I'm Aaron Ryan. Craig McLaughlin burst onto our screens in 1987 as the lovable Henry Ramsey in Neighbours. He was just a fresh 21 at the time. While some critics initially dismissed him as a pretty boy, he grew into the role that would make him a household name across 418 episodes. Craig will then jump across the pond to Summer Bay for 177 episodes playing Grant Mitchell. Interestingly, his sister in Neighbours was Kylie Minogue and his love interest on Home and Away was Danny Minogue. Craig has appeared in a massive range of Australian productions, including Always Greener, McLeod's Daughters, City Homicide, Packed to the Rafters, House Husbands, and who can forget him playing the title role in the Dr. Blake Mysteries. Craig is, to many, a great musician and in 1991 won an ARIA Award for Highest Selling Single. In such a flexible and varied career, Craig has led the stage as well, having been the lead in Greece and starred in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, White Christmas and Chicago. However, in 2018, allegations of sexual harassment by several actresses were made and Craig subsequently left the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Seven chose not to use him for a reincarnation of the Dr. Blake Mysteries. Craig has strenuously denied all allegations. In a separate case in 2019, criminal charges were laid against Craig, with uh, Craig McLaughlin totally acquitted of all charges. In 2021, Seven News' Spotlight claimed that the ABC had manipulated McLaughlin's accusers, and off-camera footage showed evidence of coaching. Craig has put himself in the SAS Australia firing line as a contestant, and at the halfway point, he is still in the series and doing well. This podcast is to celebrate the career of Craig McLaughlin, his contribution to the arts in Australia, and his time on SAS. Craig is open to all questions. However, there are some legal matters still before the courts, which will prevent Craig from talking about some specific information. Big big intro, Craig, but a massive career. So much to talk about. Craig McLaughlin, thank you for joining me here at TV Central. Aaron, seriously, an intro like that. (laughs) Do you offer any publicity services on top of being the producer of your own show? That's the best rap I think I've had in 30-plus years. Oh, absolutely deserved. Um, and I appreciate you for fronting up for this one. Um, and you did say you were open to all questions. So I want to get straight to the point and ask you a question that may be very difficult to answer. Far away. Did you prefer working more with Kylie or Daddy Minogue? <laughs> a couple of probing questions, but honestly... And maybe toughest question. Both the Minogue girls were wonderful. But if you're really asking me who my favorite Minogue girl is, are you ready? You may want to insert a drum roll here. <laughs> it's Carol. Kylie and Danny's mum, Carol. She's the most wonderful of all the Minogue girls. And I got to know the Minogue family, obviously. Uh through the late 80s with Kylie playing my sister on Neighbours. And, of course, I had an association with the Young Talent talent team through Johnny Young's Young Talent time. So I used to host the show occasionally uh, when Johnny was otherwise engaged, got to know the kids and their parents really well. 
got to know Danny really well on uh, YTT and got to know the girl's mum, Carol. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman. So basically, you can see I'm trying to avoid really answering the question. This is what I've learned from lawyers over the years. You, see, you just talk around <laughs> You'll never have to actually answer. But, no, I look, the Minogue family, uh, very special people. I loved getting to know all of them. My first scene on Neighbours, Aaron, just to be clear, my first scene, the first scene I ever shot as Henry Mitchell, remember that when I joined, Madge was still Madge Mitchell and... Uh, I was Madge's son, Henry, Henry Mitchell. We later changed our name to Ramsey. Ah. Um, but the first scene I ever shot was with Kylie. She was so welcoming. She was such a, uh, a wonderful sort of bundle of enthusiasm. And we actually looked like brother and sister. We both had, you know, the long, curly blonde hair. <laughs> and the other person in that scene was... Uh, another gal I absolutely adored and we became very, very close. Uh, and that actress was Vivian Gray, who, of course, played the legendary and notorious, some would say, Nell Mangle. So my first scene with Kylie and Vivian, Charlene and Mrs Mangle, can I just say to Aaron, there'll be some people listening to your show, particularly perhaps some of our English friends, who'll be going, what, Nell Mangle? What? How, how could she be nice? What an old busybody? What? Let me tell you something. That shows you what a great actor mm. Vivian Ray was because Vivian was so not Mrs Mangle. She was funny, Aaron. She had a wicked and funny sense of humour. She had... She had a bunch of nicknames for me <laughs> that I can't tell you what, not on this podcast, not today. I can't tell you some of the nicknames, but she was riotously funny. And it's amazing she and I ever got a single scene in the can because we just laughed constantly. So there you have it. I love both Kylie and Danny and Carol and their dad. And, and um, Mrs. Mangle. And Mrs. Mangle. <laughs> Look, I want to go right back to the beginning. What sort of child were you um, and what was the family dynamics growing up? I asked that because I'm trying to get a glimpse into the first signs um, of a massive career that would come later. That's a really good question. Um, well, I was the perfect child. You know, didn't speak unless spoken to. Very well behaved, quiet. I just locked myself away and read little golden books. That's a good thing. My brother and my mum aren't here because they would tell you that my brother would say, well, he was a weird kid. Weird in that I was completely um, enamoured. I was completely sort of, um, my imagination was, was captured by television, film and music. Um, um, I'll pause there and just speak briefly about my family, my mum and dad. Madeline and Peter, my brother Bruce. Brother Bruce is oh, eight and a half years my senior. He was a very, very happy, um, your classic sort of happy Aussie family. Um, but the age difference between Bruce and I, 
you know, Bruce is a 16-year-old. I'm seven and a half, about to turn eight. You know, he's he's getting his pee plates, he's driving his car, he's doing whatever. So I spent a lot of my childhood imagining that, you know, I was Will Robinson or hmm. from Lost in Space or Gilligan from Gilligan's Island. Um, um, I know this has appeared in interviews over the years. At school tuck shop uh, in primary school and later at high school, the canteen, um, I filled my lunch order out as John Wayne. And literally, <laughs> the women at the canteen would say, how are you today, John? Well, all the better for seeing you, ma'am. And, um, and so, yeah, very happy family. I would just say this clearly, you know, I was taken with, with all things performance-related particularly. Um, but a big change was to come with my family with my dad being diagnosed with cancer in must have been around 1976. I would have been about 11. And ultimately we lost Dad, sadly, in 1980. Um, so the happy bubble that was uh, the McLaughlin family, uh, it was well and truly pricked when we lost Dad. Um, but Bruce and Mum and I, we're, we're still here. Mum, God bless her. Uh, she'll hate me for saying this, but, you know, at 92, she's still driving us all nuts. Um, <laughs> uh, she's wonderful. Um, but, yeah, you know, it was, it was um, it, my childhood was really spent being fascinated by and immersing myself in, in, in all things performance related, you know. Don't know why I love John Wayne so much. A lot of people, a lot of people would say of all the actors you could choose, and I think it was because he may not have been, he may not have been De Niro or Al Pacino, because you know a lot of actors will say, oh, you know, you got a great actor, Al Pacino or or whatever. I think with John Wayne, it's because it was beyond his acting or performance. John Wayne was a star, wasn't he? He just was. I mean, people would argue he wasn't he wasn't Brad Pitt to look at, but there was something about him. Anyway, you just shoot me down if I start waffling on about that stuff, right, Aaron? You have license to just Craig, move it along, bud. No, it's lovely hearing the stories and you know about growing up and stuff. But but in your in your teenage life, um, you were playing music. Um, I mean, were you playing music, acting at school, and doing things like that? Um, well, that's a really interesting question. Um, certainly, by the time I got to high school, um, I was playing in working bands. Yes, underage. <laughs> but um, if they put me in a you know, one of my father's ill-fitting sports coats with the padded shoulders and stood me at the back of the stage, keep the spotlight off me. People didn't know. But so yeah, I was <laughs> playing. And in terms of in terms of um school, by the time I got to high school, high schools in the 70s, they would do an annual production, wouldn't they? It might be Oliver. You mm. know, please, sir, may I have some more? <laughs> more? <laughs> Um, Little Abner, 
there's a show for our friends to Google. Little Abner, I remember um, our high school did a production of Little Abner. But anyway, I was, me and my best mate uh, who had the nickname of Chalk, he was a drummer. He'd learned, started learning drums around the time I started formally learning guitar. And we always wanted to play in the in the orchestra, in the in the the show band, you know. And I'd look at the actors on stage and I'd think, oh, I could do that. I could, you know, I could take a little bit of John Wayne up there on that stage. Perhaps not mm. use John Wayne's <laughs> voice, but so I was loving playing in the bands, but part of me was like, oh, next next year when the school does a production, I'll I'll audition for a role. Next year came and I didn't. I went playing back in the band. And then in 1980, two of our school teachers, an English teacher and a music teacher, um, wrote a rock musical about high school kids. And it was called S Apostrophe Cool. Um, for all of our friends listening, I don't know if the show has a presence online or not. I've, I've never thought to have a look, but S Apostrophe Cool. And I know it's become a popular musical for high schools to produce and perform. And the lead role was kind of a Jekyll and Hyde role. It was a nerdy little guy called Nigel. Hmm. And there was a strong mental health element to this show, even back then in 1980. Can you believe it? And Nigel was bullied at school sort of relentlessly. And made a desperate attempt on his own life in the science lab before lunch one day. But the potion he concocted transformed him into like a Fonzie meets Elvis meets, you remember this is 1980, meets John Travolta's sort of character. And this was the Nick character. So it was this Jekyll and Hyde thing. And I played those roles, the dual role of Nigel and Nick. And the show garnered a lot of national interest. I can remember Paul Macon a Willisy program, I think, back in the day, coming to cover, you know, doing a story on the production and all the rest of it. It was a very exciting time. And that experience was kind of it for me. Mm. I love playing in the band, but I realised I really loved being on stage, assuming a character. Mm. Uh, and, and um, you know, I wasn't as Craig at school... I certainly wasn't Nigel. I mean, I copped a, a little bit of bullying because I was tall and skinny as a kid. But but I wasn't Nigel and I wasn't Nick. I wasn't the, the uber cool guy. I know you find that hard to believe, Aaron. <laughs> I wasn't Very hard. <laughs> You're lucky you said that. I wasn't the uber cool guy. So I was playing these characters and really giving myself to the characters and and um, and loved the process. And that was kind of the beginning of it all in terms of putting the guitar down and performing on stage as an actor. So 21 then, how did the role of Neighbours come about? Um, I took out a bank loan and paid the producers a size of... <laughs> um, the truth is, Aaron, I, 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 in all honesty, I didn't really know what Neighbours was at the time. I must have been one of only handful of Australians who didn't. But to put it in context, I was working in these club bands as a guitarist. <clears throat> Most 
evenings, uh, and remember, timeline is everything. Back then, you know, uh, there were lots of venues for bands to play at, and we were playing all sorts of venues. The nights that I that the, I wasn't working in clubs or pubs with the band, I would do sort of the graveyard shifts at um, oh, this one bar in particular because it paid pretty well, you know, to to be there from midnight till dawn or whatever. So I wasn't really aware of Neighbours as a TV show. It's funny how little domino effects in our lives. So um, I was living in Sydney and started, I started doing television commercials. I met, I met a, a woman who was a theatrical agent. She was a lovely gal. Her name was uh, Leela King. And she, she would send me up for McDonald's commercials or Coke commercials or, you know, any sort of commercial that, you know, featured mm. young people. And along the way, um, I managed to get an audition for a, a, a Grundy's television program and uh, got the role. It was a guest role. It was only for a, a few episodes. And um, the director, a, a guy called Alistair Smart, People might remember the name Alistair Smart. He he was on Play School oh. back in the day. But Alistair Smart was a director uh, he, uh, and an actor. And he'd had a chat to the some of the producers at Grundy's and said, oh, we had this kid from up the coast come in, play the role of whoever it was. Um, no, he's really good. You know, he's raw. He's not, you know, he hasn't come out of NIDA or Whopper or... Acker or Dacker or whatever those okay. places are. Um, but there's something about him and he's just a lovely energy to have around, you know. So if any, if you're looking at it, you know, if you're writing anything for a young guy, and they said, well, it's interesting because two characters were about to leave Ramsey Street. I find this out subsequently, of course, Dr. Clive and uh, Peter O'Brien's character, Shane Ramsey. And we're going to replace him. We're going to replace those characters with um, a new character called Henry. And Alistair said, well, I'd, I'd suggest you. you get this kid in for an audition. So can you imagine um, I just played a gig at oh God, it was somewhere up in the Hunter Valley, Cessnock or somewhere. I'd driven back the next day. Lovely Leela King rings up and says, oh, um, listen, a fellow you worked with for Grundy's recently apparently put a word in for you and the producers of Neighbours are interested in you auditioning. Do you know the show? And I said, no. And she, <laughs> she, of course you don't. No, seriously, do you know the show? I said, no. She goes, well, it's probably the most popular soap on Australian television. I said, is it? And she said, have you heard of, you know, Kylie or Jason? Now, interestingly enough, I had seen a thing in the newspaper of this, you know, um, popular, um, gorgeous-looking young couple from this TV show. So I'm doing the math in my head. Oh, yes, I did. I saw something in the paper about those two. Um, they're in the show, aren't they? And she says, yeah, yeah. I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it. And she goes, well, you'll have to watch it tonight because your audition's tomorrow. And I went, well, I can't. I've got, I've got a double shift at the bar. So I'd never seen it. 
before going into the audition. And of course, Aaron, when I went to the audition, again, the show is very much on the ascent here in Australia. And we all know the history. It, it, it didn't work at Channel 7. They moved it to Channel 10. They recast some of the roles. Um, I think there was a different Scott Robinson originally, Darius Perkins or someone. Anyway, the waiting room when I went in for the audition, it was just full of faces I've seen on television. Mm. I've seen him on The Restless Years. I've seen him on Such and Such. He was on Young Doctors. He was cop shy. And there's me, fresh from the Cessnock Workers Club the night before, playing tie yellow ribbon round the old <laughs> oak tree. And um, I thought, well, my goose is cooked. I haven't got a hope in hell. Because I had no camera technique, you know. I was just always sort of running on, hopefully, just likeable energy, hoping that would be enough. So I really didn't think I had a shot. I went in and met the producers. And really, they, you know, asked me a little bit about my upbringing and what have you. And, you know, I shared some funny stories that clearly they responded to very positively, got me to read the scenes. I don't know that I was particularly great when it came to shooting the scenes, but they, and again, this is all stuff you find out after the event, but they were just taken by my personality and energy. Um, so you can imagine in a few days I get the call from Leela King. She was as dumbstruck as I was. <laughs> she said, <laughs> Are you sitting down, darling? And I said, as a matter of fact, I am. She goes, I just got the call from Grundy's. Um, you're in Neighbours. I thought she was kidding. <laughs> and I went, yeah, yeah, sure. She goes, no, um, I've got your flight information to fly to Melbourne next week. And that was the start of it. I kid you not. Mm. So I had to quit the band or the bands I was playing in pack my bags, and uh, and get down there to Ramsey Street. Um, on, on one hand, critics uh, initially were dismissing your acting as just being the new hunk. Um, that might be considered hurtful, but if I remember reading, your audition was based on, on more than charm, like you just said, about your personality, but because you didn't really believe in your own uh, technical acting ability. So was those kind of... Uh, comments offensive to you or did or did the hunk comments actually boost your confidence <laughs> that's that's a really good question um do you know i can remember saying to my friend guy pierce very early on because remember too aaron you know i started filming i think at the end of october or beginning of november 1986 there's there's a lag isn't there between what we shoot and what you know what we see on on air plus there was the christmas period so i'd been shooting stuff with them for however many weeks and then a tv week story came out i think i think the word hunk may have been mentioned in this this article i remember saying to guy to guy <laughs> i said to him a hunk of what exactly guy like what am i a hunk of and he just laughed and he goes well you know a hunk and I'm like, yeah, but a hunk of what? And he goes, well, you know, like hunk of spunk. And I'm like, really? Now, for me, <laughs> for me, Aaron, 
you know, apart from working in pub and club bands by day for many years, I was, you know, a plumber's offsider. Now, I didn't look any different in November 1986 or February 1987. I didn't look any different than how I looked when I might have come around to your place or to your parents' place to unblock their shower or sink. So it was hugely funny to me. No one called me a hunk when I was putting, you know, the uh, the sewer machine back in the back of my truck, <laughs> having just fixed up the plumbing in their house. No one was calling me a hunk then, and suddenly I'm a hunk. And right from the get-go, I thought, oh, I, I see. This is, this is the, for want of a better word, power of publicity and the power of the press and, and all the rest of it. So I, I didn't really, you know, I, I I wasn't upset by it and I wasn't sort of, um, you know, turned on by it. Um, I just thought it was, I thought it was very, very funny. <laughs> I did a podcast with uh, Bob Morley who started his career on Home and Away. It really played with his mental health um, and he admitted to attempts to take his own life. That moment from essentially becoming a nobody to adored throughout Australia and the UK and having um, everyone demand your attention was quite difficult for him. How did you cope with that overnight change in your life? That's a good question. I, I wasn't aware of, of the stuff with, with Morley and I'm, I, my heart goes out to him, of course. Um, yeah. Look, for me, for me, Aaron, I, I, there's no, there's, there's no getting around the fact that, that, what I have always affectionately referred to as the Kylie Jason era of neighbours. Look, I know neighbours, uh, you know, carried on um, in production for years after Kylie Jason and myself, Guy, left. I know that. Um, and I understand it's recently been rebooted after after it was uh, it finished up a year or so ago. But honestly, that late 80s period was akin to Beatlemania. It's hard for people who have, you know, I, I know folks who um, appeared in the show toward the end of its main run, you know. And, um, you know, for some of them it's, you know, it's, it's another job and for some of them, well, it's great to, to be a part of this iconic brand. But that period, that, that Charlene, Scott, Henry, Mike period, it was insane. I mean, when you're getting faxes, the young ones will be saying, what's a fax, Craig? When you're getting faxes in a pre-internet world and it's from the BBC publicity department and they're saying, we've hit the 20 million mark. Wow. And we're having to screen it twice a day because people are skipping work and skipping school at lunchtimes to watch it. So we're going to keep it on at lunchtime and screen the same episode again later in the afternoon, after school, after work hours. Australia's population wasn't at 20 million. We, I remember Kylie, I'm pretty sure it was Kylie, encouraged me to join her on a, on a, on an appearance. And it was at one 
kind of these massive uh, shopping malls, you know, like four stories of every imaginable boutique and shop. Not only could the vehicle taking us to the sort of um, loading dock area of this place, not only could the vehicle not get in to the place, it, it was rammed, just thousands and thousands of people. And that was just a taster, an entree of what was to come. So within a year or so, some of the cast were making trips to the UK, coming back and saying, Craig, you, you've got to go. I mean, this stuff just, this is Beatlemania. And, and I would, again, I think just being, not being from a showbiz family and all that sort of stuff, and finding all of the hunker spunk press stuff, you know, all very amusing. I used to take it with a grain of salt and think, well, it can't, it can't be, it can't be like Beatlemania. Well, it wasn't until I made the trip to England myself in maybe '88. From the moment you step off the plane, and it's just, it's just a, a, a wall of paps, and then they're chasing you back to the hotel. How the kids find out you're staying at this hotel to this day, it's a mystery to me. <laughs> if you can't get from the car to the front door of the hotel, it was, and in fact, Aaron, even just speaking about it, I can't do it justice. I'd have to, if we chat again down the track, which would be lovely, I'll, I'll dig out some photos from back in the day. It was just insane. To put it in perspective, a few years later, when, when my band was doing well in Europe and the UK, you know, normally when you play an acoustic gig, it's mm. sort of an intimate sort of gig, right? I did an acoustic gig for a radio station in the UK and it was an outdoor broadcast and we thought, you know, if there were a few locals, they might come down. <laughs> 25,000 people packed wow. this, this rugby park, you know. Wow. It was insane. So getting back to your question, how did I deal with it all? I really dealt with it by not buying into it, if that makes sense. And also, I only ever sort of did what was necessary. And what I mean is, I mean, to this day, if you try and Google pictures of me at the openings of movies or there'll be photos of me at things I have to attend because I'm in them. But beyond that, I love my work uh, and I love communing with an audience and all the rest of it. And I always took that stuff very seriously. And what I mean is, you know, I was dedicated and really gave myself to the work and 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 the audience. But I was also, I also determined from a very early point in my career that I wanted a private life and, mm. uh, and it would be private. So I think I kind of handled the madness of it by accepting that there's going to be an element of that madness, but I will balance that out with my family and, and my friends who were friends with me from when I was playing entire yellow ribbon and the old oak tree up the Cessna pub. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And that's how I kind of dealt with it. Nessa will tell you, though, you know, even at the height of, even with, you know, with, with the Dr. Blake stuff, um, publicists would have to twist my arm to get me to do stuff. And, of course, I'd, I'd always do it and thoroughly enjoy it nine times out of ten, knowing that's part of this, I'll do that, 
and then step away and have my time with Nessie or have my time with family, you know. But for some people, Aaron, for some people it's really difficult. And sometimes it, it wasn't fun. But again, I had my determined dedication to my private life and retreat to. Well, that was a uh, long run for uh, you playing Henry. 418 episodes as one character. Um, how, many, how many was it, Aaron? Well, I believe 418 episodes, was it? Wow. I guess it mm. must have been. That is a fair run, but I suppose compared to Carl and Susan Kennedy, it's a walk in the park. Um, is, is there a point where the work is not challenging anymore or – do different storylines um, or having a music career on the side for you um, help you keep the work fresh? That's a really good question. That's a hell of a run, isn't it, for Dr. Carl? And, uh, <laughs> still going. Still going. Um, do you know, for me, um, and I'm sure we'll get onto this in a moment, but um, Henry was so much fun and the Ramsey household was just so riotous and funny and fun that, I mean, I would have happily stayed with Henry uh, for even longer. But we'll get on to why why I left after 400 and something episodes shortly. Um, the music stuff on the side, yeah, it was a great release as well because um, before we started uh the recording sessions for that for, for the album, the Check On Two album, we were we had a residency and we were playing at least once or twice a week. And you say, well, on top of a shooting schedule like, you know, what 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 we were, you know, the, the neighbor's schedule was grueling, there's no doubt about it. But Aaron, when you're in your early twenties, you've got energy to burn, mm. you know. Playing guitar was and is part of just who I am. It's like breathing for me. So, um, and it offered up, it offered up, you know, another performing outlet that was a million miles away from uh, from Henry and and all things Ramsey. So that's a really good question. I think it probably um, it probably served me really well having the boys down in Melbourne and the band to escape to. But really, Henry was so much fun. Mm. Um, I honestly can't ever remember a day where I didn't walk through the front doors of the old Channel 10, Nana Wadding, see the girls on reception. Good morning, girls. Good morning, Craig. I just couldn't wait to get into the studio. I'd open it. If you speak to any of the crew who were there back in the day, when it was Ramsey household stuff to shoot, the interiors of, I'd open the door and go, it's party time. And you'd hear all the cameramen go, it's party time. And we would just have the best time. And we always completed the day. That might be 18 or 20 something scenes, you know. Certainly as far as Neighbours was concerned, I never experienced that. Oh, this is all so boring. Plus Aaron... I was just so grateful to get the opportunity and I was just so eager to learn every day. There was something to learn. But, I, you know, I've spoken to other actors over the years who have been in long-running television shows or even long-running theatre shows and, you know, they're out of their mind. 
they're out of their minds. But you know, it's um, it's paying the bills and all the rest of it. So I I totally get that as well. But um, but for me, certainly that that neighbours period was just it was too much fun to ever ever become a drag, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. But ultimately, you did jump from uh, neighbours to home and away. Was it the money thing or did you just want to be in a new environment with new people? Alf Stewart cornered me on the street one day and said, now listen to Henry, you little bugger. You little mongrel. <laughs> um, no, you know, it was a really interesting and and uh, Alf, everybody, that's Ray Mara, of course, a dear old mate of mine. Um, the truth of it was um, Christopher Scase, the late Christopher Scase, um, had purchased what we all know as Channel 7. And uh, I had a manager at the time who was acquainted with Scase. And basically, they presented me with an outrageous deal. Um, and uh, to, that's a that's a great podcast for another day. We can talk all about the you know Craig's Scase deal, <laughs> but um, it it was it was extraordinary because Scase yeah. also put an offering on a major Hollywood studio, and he was wanting to to do this, that, and the other thing. And I didn't really just between you and me and everybody listening to your podcast, <laughs> I didn't really want to go, and that was. That had, you know, no disrespect to um, the wonderful people I ended up working with at home and away and seven, but I was just happy and I was still felt like I was still learning uh, at, at neighbours. But the deal included um, all sorts of international projects, and it was a it was for a young guy wanting to learn, you know, and, and it went beyond television. You see, so. It, it, the deal included a number of international motion pictures and miniseries. And I just thought this could be the greatest classroom um, I'll ever get to attend. It was the 80s. It was Scase and, you know, the money wasn't dreadful. Um, so ultimately, you know, I signed up to move across. And, of course, we all know what happened. I signed on a Thursday by the following Tuesday Quintech's case went under. Um, Mr. Scase managed to get his passport back and disappeared to be a lookout. <laughs> and I was left with a deal, a signed deal that really meant nothing anymore. Um, and there's a tiny, tiny little clause. So many contracts have them. You don't spend a lot of time perusing them or, or you know, closely examining them. But the little clause said, in the highly unlikely event that anything... Uh, goes wrong in terms of, you know, Scase and Quintex's involvement with Network 7. In other words, should things go belly up, we basically, the entity known as 7, can do with Mr McLaughlin whatever. I mean, I could have ended up reading the news up in Walgut <laughs> or in Bunbury. I could have been the weatherman in Alice Springs, but um, Channel 7 put me in the home and away, and it was, it was a lo lovely time with those guys. Oh, beautiful. We talked about some of your, like your music on the side. How important was music to you at the time? And I guess is still to you now. As I, I, 
you know, I made the comment that, you know, playing is is like breathing to me. I it's it's rare that I'm not chatting to you now with a guitar or a banjo or a ukulele or something right by my side to punctuate stories with a little tune. Um um, I'll save that for the next time we we chat. But um, if you give yourself to an instrument, it really gives back. You know, mm. uh, a guitar's not gonna bullshit you. It's not gonna be duplicitous. It's not going to be. You can trust it. It gives it gives itself to you. You give yourself to it. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to play an instrument, and it's never too late. You know what I mean? Um, I. I've chatted to so many people in recent years who, ah, oh, I've seen you play the ukulele on telly. I've seen you. Play. I'm thinking of learning. Do it, I say. Do it. Grab that instrument. Give yourself to it. Get over that little frustrating initial hump, and then it'll just the world will open up to you. And so many people have gotten back in touch with Nessie and I and went, I got over the initial hump, and now I can play this, and now I can do that. Um, nice. Yeah, I can't. I can't emphasize what it means to me to be able to play and certainly during that neighbor's period as i mentioned earlier to have that to have that extra sort of performance outlet it was great it was an interesting time though too aaron because you know kylie had the hit with locomotion had signed the deal with stock ache and waterman donovan followed suit signed up with stock ache and waterman everyone was kind of signing up with those guys I determined in the band, we determined that we wouldn't sign a record deal because we'd just be, well, they're the next, Craig's the next neighbour's guy, you know, to do it. And so we played for a long time. We had, I remember having a fascinating chat with Michael, the late Michael Gadinsky about signing a record deal. And I said to Michael, I've been playing guitar since I was a kid. I don't think if I ever wanted to do something musically down the track, I don't know if it served me. And Michael was, you know, oh, just do it. Just do it, maker. You know, like, you know, what do you got to lose, mate? Just do it. Now's the time to do it. And eventually um, we did sign the deal with CBS Records, or Sony as they are now. Um, and and that was quite an education. But, yeah, music, it's... it's um, it's just part of who I am, Aaron. Mm. You are. You did have great success, of course, with Craig McLaughlin and Check One Two. Now, who can forget Mona? How Aussie was that clip? Uh, you know, singing on the back of a ute with a guitar in the countryside, shirt unbuttoned. Are you proud of that time, or is it a bit cringeworthy when you look back? Yeah, I don't know if I should have unbuttoned the shirt quite as far as I did. Um, I don't know that that helped with musical credibility. I think as soon as those buttons, you know, unbuttoned to the belly button, I, I don't think people were, were really looking at my fingers on the fretboard. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Aaron, if I can share with you and uh, the wonderful fans of your show a little true story about that, as you say, very sort of iconic Aussie music video. That is an act where we where we shot it. It, it's an actual dirt road that leads to an actual pub up in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales. And on the day of shooting the video, and if you remember, once the, once we get out of the ute, we go into the pub and we sort of set up a play out in the beer garden. 
Mm. Well, it just happens that on that day, on that day, and I kid you not, you're hearing it, you're hearing it here, folks. <laughs> um, the local rugby team won their first match in I don't know how many games or even how many years. And that rugby team rocked up to the pub not knowing that there was a film crew there and a band. Um, I certainly had no idea that Craig, uh, off the telly, Henry, <laughs> it's his band. So they proceeded to party on, celebrate their victory, celebrate meeting me and the band. And do you know how difficult it was for the editor and the director to edit that film clip so that the audience ultimately didn't see drunken rugby players in the back mooning the camera? I think the Australianism for it is brown eyeing, isn't it? Is that the Australian That's it. term for it? So, so and lifting their shirts up and you know showing their beer bellies and stuff. Every second shot, you know, there'd be a, a glamorous shot of the the girl playing Mona, and then from left of frame, this guy had come in <laughs> and guzzled the beer. It was the day was hilarious. The, the fact that we actually got a video out of it that we were able to screen on television <laughs> was nothing short of miraculous. Well, there's YouTube now. We can get that one out, uncensored version of my. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that that's something we want to see. Oh, everything's out there. Um in terms of your film roles, though, what stands out for you? I mean, for me, I think playing Stuart Diver in, in Heroes Mountain was a highlight, but what about you? Oh, thank you for that, Aaron. And I'd have to agree with you. A definite highlight for all sorts of reasons. Um, and, and up to that point in my career, I'd been lucky enough to work on both sides of the equator and do a range of really varied projects. But that one... That was special. And and as I say, a, a story that so resonates with uh, Australians, in fact, resonates with people around the world. Um, but for me personally, on a human level, I, I felt that it was an absolute privilege to do it, to tell the story um, or to be a part of the telling of the story. Real privilege and just wanting to do the story justice for the Stuart and his family and the family of his then wife who perished in the disaster. I felt a tremendous responsibility. I just wanted it to be right. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary experience for all of us, for all of us involved, but mm. certainly for me. You went to the uh, UK to do three seasons of Bugs. Now, I didn't initially remember that when I looked at your bio, but then I watched a few clips on YouTube and it all came back. I'm pretty sure it aired on Saturday nights on 7. Um, what was the main differences uh, working on a UK production versus an Australian production? That's a really good question too. The, <laughs> I, do you know what? I wasn't I wasn't actually aware, Aaron, that... that um, it was screened here in Australia, so there's something else you've taught me today. Um, very popular in the UK. It was the BBC's highest rating uh, Saturday night drama for, oh, for, for years. Sold very well throughout Europe. Um, 
the big difference for me was uh, the producers at the time, a company called Carnival Films, under the leadership of a guy called Brian Eastman, a, a very seasoned, experienced producer. And we were shooting, I think it was 10 eps a season. Um, it, it was all, certainly the early um, seasons were shot on film. The big thing you notice, and it was produced by the BBC, co-produced by the BBC to be seen on the BBC. So there was tremendous attention to detail. Time was spent. Tremendous time was spent on, you know, everything from scripts to production design. It was an action-adventure thing, so it had a big special effects budget. Mm. So I was experiencing all of these sort of facets of filmmaking or television filmmaking that I hadn't experienced before. Just the money spent on pyro. Back then, too, um, you were given the option to do your own stunts or at least, you know, be trained to do. So, you know, I was learning to do all these sort of exciting, breathtaking things. Um, but it was really about, it was just really about production values and time. Obviously, you know, you, 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 you churn out however many eps of Neighbours, how many scenes a day or whatever. People are quick to dismiss all that stuff. But, you know, you've got to take your hat off to any of these soap productions for actually managing to produce what they produce. Getting it out there, it entertains people. But suddenly I was like, oh, okay, I'm not, I'm not having to function at that sort of breakneck pace every day. And I was really noticing where the money was being spent, if that makes sense. Another great education doing the bugs thing. Mm. Um, it was a wonderful, wonderful time in my life and a really great bunch of people. Yeah, bugs, like your action adventure. Go go find a copy of bugs. Yeah, you get a few clips on uh, on YouTube as well. Look, I absolutely loved uh, Always Greener. You played Greg on that one. Um, that show was cancelled way too early, in my opinion. But can you explain the difference uh, in shooting a one-hour drama versus the output of, you know, two and a half hours of drama a week on shows like Neighbours at Home and Away? Always Greener. I agree with you. I mean, that thing had legs, man. I, I, I couldn't believe it wrapped up when it did. Mm. So quirky, so entertaining. I think that's Bev and Lee again, isn't it? Created Always Greener. I think anyway, so. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was a wonderful, wonderful thing to be a part of. Again, can I just say, you've got to go at a fair clip um, when you're shooting that sort of television drama. But again, it's not like, it's not, it's not like shooting a neighbours or a home and away. It just it isn't. You you do have a little more time to finesse all sorts of things. Can I tell you one very quick always greener story though? Absolutely. There's one day there was a scene where Greg is is having um, dinner with um, uh, Caitlin's character. The name escapes me. It's such a long time ago. But anyway, they're sitting down to sushi. Yeah. Now, a lot of the crew I'd known since I was a kid doing Home and Away on Channel 7, and they all 
knew my sense of humour and, and it was a really, really fun and happy set. Well, they loaded up the sushi for the take with more wasabi than any human being should <laughs> ever have to ingest. So when they called action and Greg delivers his dialogue and halfway through, as continuity dictates, he takes a bite of this sushi. Do you remember the Warner Brothers Merry Medley's cartoons and the eyes and the, <laughs> and the steam and the... I experienced a complete esophageal meltdown because of the amount of wasabi they'd put on this sushi. Like, seriously, I had tears streaming down my face. I could barely breathe. Thank God I wasn't allergic to the stuff because we wouldn't be here today speaking. <laughs> but Aaron, did Craig stop? Continued with the scene, much to the crew's absolute disbelief. <laughs> the devil finally called cut and we just all collapsed. It oh, was, wow. Yeah, it was hilarious. And that those are the sorts of pranks those guys would pull on, on me. But good, good times. Good, good times. Oh, wow. I think Caitlin's character, now I'd have to fact check, but I think her character was Sandra from back then. That's right. I, I could be wrong. That that's, sounds familiar to me. Uh, great gal. We had so much fun. So much fun on it. I would have loved... I was heading back to England for something at the time. I would have loved to have done more with them. It was so quirky, so kooky, um, terrific fun to be a part of. Yeah, great cast. Um, when looking through your bio, um, it is obviously mostly Australian shows, so there's Bugs and a, a few other things, of course, but there's a random episode of NCIS Los Angeles. I mean, how did that come about? <laughs> You're good, Aaron. You're good. Um, apparently that cropped up on Australian television again fairly recently. Some folks contacted Vanessa and I and were asking the same thing, really. Craig, how the hell, why, what? I happened to be in Los Angeles dealing with uh, uh, a work permit, a green card issue at the time, and I had to spend however many weeks over there. And... While I was there, I got a call from a buddy of mine and said, hey, um, this really interesting character, we've just got a brief for NCIS Los Angeles, and it kind of it would shoot during the time you're here. Do you want to go in and at least meet them and say hi? I'd literally just, I'd just been for a surf down near Malibu. I was sitting hmm. at a coffee shop, board shorts, wet hair. I said, oh, yeah, certainly I'm always up to, to meet people, say good day. And he said, um, but they need to see you now. And I went, well, you need to warn them that I've just got out of the surf, but I'm happy to go in. Went in, met them, got on fantastically. They said, would you mind, you know, having a read of the script and, and we'll pop something on tape? Again, I, I'm dressed like, you know, a Bondi surfer, not like someone who's about to appear in NCIS Los Angeles, but yeah, sure. I'll get, if you just give me a minute with the script and I'll hopefully my shorts will be a bit drier and we can bung something down. <laughs> and so I they gave me a second. Um, it wasn't any drier when I walked into their little uh, audition suite. Did it, thought nothing more about it, and then um, got the call the next day to say, oh, you know, can you be at such and such address downtown on Monday and shoot your first scene with them? And I said, oh, I'd love to. And uh, it was wonderful. 
LL Cool J, he is cool. Just a wonderful, wonderful fella. Funny, um, really generous with his time and his energy. We had we had uh, some good laughs together. Chris, lovely, lovely fella. Oh, um, you know, again, it was one of those one of those wonderful experiences. You know, sometimes you walk onto a job. Well, any job you walk onto, you're not sure what you're going to face. Um, you know, some some jobs are easier and more fun than others, but those guys so welcoming. Um, yeah, it was it was terrific fun. <laughs> I've I've never seen the episode in its entirety, so oh, wow. yeah. But but um, my memories of, of my time with them, yeah, it was it was great. You wouldn't have had to worry about coming out of the surf kind of look because uh, Eric uh, Christian Olsen, who plays Deeks on the show, it always looks like that. <laughs> I, I know, right? Well, that was pointed out to me after after my surf-soaked audition. Yeah, that's right. You uh, you seem to have had uh, very steady work since the uh, end of Neighbours in a variety of roles, which doesn't um happen often to soap stars. What do you believe was the magic to your to your successful career after that, Neighbours? Um, well, that's another great question. You're very good at this, Aaron. You can have your own podcast. Uh, I, I can remember working with um, Myra de Groot. She, she was with us uh, on Neighbours. Sadly, sort of she died, in fact, while, while I was still with the show. But she came up to me once and she said, when I first joined, and she really took me under her wing, as it were, and she said, "Listen, I, you've got something, kid." And Myra was a no BS gal. She she just she would call it as she saw it, you know. And she said, "You've got something." So I'm going to tell you this: you'll cop a lot of crap from people because you're starting your career on a soap. Don't listen to that BS. Don't let a day go by without learning something. And I don't mean just from us older actors experience, from the sound department, camera guys, whatever. And she said, if you're open to learning something every day, to always be, you know, picking things up, it'll serve you as you move forward. And she was right. And honestly, Aaron, I, I think my career beyond Neighbours was varied. It's not because I think I'm, you know, John Gilgood, by any stretch. <laughs> and I know Larry Olivier. But I tell you what I always brought with me was just an open energy, um, um, good spirit, if you will. Um, and I think I was, I was constantly employed from the time I left Neighbours because I never carried the attitude of, well, I've learned it all. Stand aside, everybody. Here comes the star of the show. Quite the opposite. Now, I was always grateful to be there um, and happy to collaborate. And and um, and I guess that sort of reputation gets around. If you're, dare I say it, I don't know if I can use this sort of language on your podcast, Aaron, but if you're an absolute ass and difficult, you know, you can fool some of the people some of the time. You can't fool the people all the time. Yeah. Um, so I, I just think... Being in that headspace of being open and, and up for it and and willing to learn. I mean, I would, one of the greatest experiences I had was was working with uh, Jean Moreau, the late Ian Richardson, Brian Blessed, 
Omar Sharif. I did a film with Omar Sharif where he didn't have his tash. Mm. Controversial. Um, but just being in that company yeah, and being open to learning from these people, ah, it was just it was just wonderful. Well, there was, of course, the Dr. Blake mysteries, hugely adored by the Australian public. How did that come about? Because before that, you were in a lot of high-profile commercial network shows. The Dr. Blake mysteries is particularly interesting because, well, this is, here's a connection to uh, NCIS Los Angeles. At the time I was filming with those guys, um, a dear friend of mine who was representing me at the time got in touch just to check in, see how I was going. And had said, oh, they said, really, we've got an interesting casting brief today. The ABC uh, have teamed up with a, uh, with a production company to produce this murder mystery show called The Dr. Blake Mysteries. And they're very much kind of wanting to produce a classic-looking BBC-esque murder mystery thing. I said, that sounds exciting. Who, who's playing The Doctor? They said, well, they haven't cast the show yet, but, darling, you're too young. My friend said, I said, really? And, and at the time they were looking for an actor. I think originally they wanted Blake to be sort of early 60s or something, you know. Wow. And indeed they were looking at actors who were a few years older than me. And he said, look, I'll, do you know what? I'll, I'll email you on the quiet the script that we've been sent, which would be like their pilot script, if you will. Mm. And I read it. And having worked for the BBC and having lived in the UK for so many years, I understood immediately what they were going for, you know, the, the look of the show, the pace of the show. And I just thought, hang it, I might be too young, but I'm gonna I'm gonna videotape a couple of scenes and just on a phone and send it. And this is where NCIS fits in. There are a couple of days we were filming NCIS out in the middle of the Bay of Los Angeles. It was a stinking hot day. Stop me if you've heard the story or read the story, Aaron, but it's all true. Um, and I deliberately didn't wear any sunscreen for the two days. And so I'm out on the water squinting, you know, scrunching my nose up, scrunching my face up. By the end of those two days, I had these horrendous crow's feet. <laughs> Not etched into my skin, but certainly just, you know, my skin was suddenly, it seemed to have aged at least a decade, if not more. And then I went to a friend of mine's place, Dave, having learned a couple of scenes and we filmed them. And I remember him saying, hey, do you want to go into the bathroom and maybe, I, I mean, I have some makeup in the, in the, you can, because you look, and he's trying to say that I look terrible, you know. And I said, that's exactly what I'm going for. Now, for a Hollywood guy, he couldn't believe that. You know, you want to look old and just, you know, and I'm like, yes, I want to look old and, you know. So he said, okay, it's your funeral. And we shot these scenes and sent them back to Australia. And I have seen those scenes, by the way, and I looked ancient, just my skin anyway um it was enough to get me in the final round of auditions for the the short list of of uh, wonderful actors who were who were um shortlisted 
for the for the Blake role, and the gods were obviously smiling. Um, and uh, by the time we got to those final auditions, I'd grown a bit of a beard, only because I've got so much grey in my beard. <laughs> More grey now, perhaps, but I, I had enough grey that that also helped with the appearance of looking older. And the rest is history. And I'm so grateful um, because I wasn't I wasn't on the top of uh, the ABC's list mm. for all sorts of reasons, my commercial history and just looking like a, a kid on camera. And you do know, Aaron, like even in my 40s when I was back living in Australia, I'd get called for castings playing, you know, to play the... The 29 year old surfer i mean i played danny zuko in greece again <laughs> like the third time when i was 39 i think i turned 40 on the tour a 40 year old <laughs> 1950s teenager so i was on no one's the top of anyone's list to play you know 60 something year old dr lucian blake certainly not <laughs> and yet there we are it was a blessing I loved every second of it. It's very hard to imagine Dr. Blake without you now. Um, look, I want to move on to, I guess, some of the more controversial elements of your life in the last few years. Now, you have maintained your innocence um, to all allegations and you were acquitted in one trial. I want to ask you how your mental health has been like the last five years and how you're coping now. Thank you for asking. Um, well, to say it's been tough, would be the understatement of the century. I mean, you can only imagine, in fact, that's not fair to put that on you, you can't imagine. It's, it's um, words fail me to really adequately articulate what it's like to go through. But the good news is um, I sit here today delighting in your company and so thrilled to be chatting to you. Um, an innocent man doing much better upstairs and awesome. there've been there've been some good people along the way helping with that. Um, I hope you don't mind me embarrassing you in front of your audience, but no, that's what the edit button's for. <laughs> yeah, you you've been one of them, and I appreciate uh, you reaching out to us. Good people. So so you know I'm I'm doing all right. Do you believe there will be a, a Craig McLaughlin 2.0 in, in terms of your career or are you resigned to the fact that some people believe once tainted, even falsely, uh, that your career is over? Craig 2.0, I'm going to get that on a T-shirt. I like that. Do you know, I'll answer it this way. When I was a kid, I walked into the family kitchen. My mum and brother were there. I was in my late teens, I guess, and... The little portable television near the kitchen was on and Bert Newton, my dear old mate, God rest his soul, was hosting the Logies. And I, <laughs> I'm laughing. And I said to my mum and my brother, I'll be there in a couple of years. And they laughed and joked that, yeah, you'll be there waiting the tables or perhaps working behind the bar. And I said, no, no, I'll be there. And we all laughed. A couple of years later, I was there. Now, I didn't say that night that I was going to win anything. I just said I'd be there, and I was. And then I said, to, and, of course, this is pre-internet, and, you know, I, I get a telegram from my mum and brother that said, sorry we laughed at you in the kitchen that night. It looks like, <laughs> <laughs> it looks like your prediction came true. You know, we love you, bloody blah. 
And I spoke to them that night, later that night, to tell them how exciting it was. In fact, I was running out to make phone calls on a pay phone in the hotel to say, I've just met Don Lane. I have to call you back. I've got to go back in. And then I said to them, I'll win one next year. Now, I'm not saying this to, to kind of blow any smoke up my own derriere. It's just whatever that inherent sort of uh, belief was. And again, it wasn't because here I come to save your day that I thought I was the greatest thing since sliced bread. I just believed I could do it. Mm. And the following year, I, you know, I, I won the silver and another telegram from the family. Okay, you've made your point, you know, and so it went on. So I'm just looking forward to picking up where I left off. So whether we call it a 2.0 or just a resumption of, I love what I do. Um, it's all about the people. And I can't wait. I, I, I can't wait to get up there and commune with audiences again. Really, I really can't. Can't wait to see you back. Uh, quite clearly, the last five years' work obviously has dried up, and I imagine the legal bills have been huge. How, how have you been supporting yourself the last few years? Um, you're right. The big end of town lawyers really know how to charge. <laughs> um, and Vanessa and I, um, Vanessa and I had no choice but to initiate um, defamation proceedings initially. And you don't do that if you think you might even be accidentally guilty of something. You just don't because mm. it's it's a very costly exercise. Throw in a criminal matter, and yeah, it's it's very expensive. But um, being found not guilty, uh, an innocent man, there was a court order made that Victoria Police, who probably shouldn't have charged me in the first place, but there was a very eager detective, they were ordered, they, they weren't doing it as a favour to us, they were ordered to pay our costs. Nothing says we got it wrong more than the police having to pay costs yeah. for a man who's gone through the torture of the criminal justice system. So, uh, and I think, and we could double check it, but that's not important, but I think it was the uh, biggest um, payment of costs to an individual ever down there. Mm. And I think that says it all, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Look, uh, people have opinions about standing people down with allegations against them. For me, I, I wrestle with it so much because on one hand, just someone's words can ruin a whole career and take a toll on the person mentally, emotionally, physically and financially. If we put our faith in the justice system, shouldn't a person be offered the presumption of innocence to continue their work until if and when they're found guilty of said allegation? However, on the other hand, if allegations against someone turn out to be true, then it would be against any kind of duty of care to others to keep the person there whilst an investigation takes place. So in your case, Seven stood you down from Dr. Blake. Where do you stand on all this? Um, you have been found not guilty in a court of law, which on reflection, you are the victim. Where, where is that balance for you between presumption of innocence and duty of care to others. Well done, Aaron. You bring up some really important um, issues in that question. I'll try and um, condense it all down to, to one very important, irrelevant 
thing. For me, if I ponder what you've brought up, it all distills down to the erosion of the foundation stone, the absolute fundamental, that foundation stone of our justice and legal system, which is the presumption of innocence. Now, that, that crucial, necessary foundation stone has been eroded. It continues to be eroded today, not just by wind and sea, but by jackhammers. It's deliberately being eroded and it's wrong for all sorts of reasons. And it's dangerous. Every Australian should be concerned, not just famous folk or politicians, celebrities. Every Australian family should be concerned at the erosion of that absolutely necessary, fundamental presumption of innocence. Because when that's gone, what are you left with? You're left with anarchy and you're left with lives ruined. Something we need to think about. And the lawmakers need to give it some consideration to. All right. I think um, people have different points of view about the Me Too movement. Um, people should always have a voice and the ability to speak out. But with that comes certain responsibilities. Ultimately, some allegations will be proved. But in many cases, allegations have been made uh, with wrong motivations um, and as a tool to hurt someone, but ultimately um, have no substance. Again, there is this, this balance between allowing real victims to speak out and find justice versus an accuser making claims outside of the legal system, which ultimately are found to be false, uh, meaning someone's life and livelihood are on the line. And in many cases, they don't recover. Where should that balance fall? Um, again, Aaron, I congratulate you on such a considered uh, question. Um, we've talked about the erosion of the presumption of innocence. But let me just say this as well. Any um, claim, or just thinking, let's just stick to the work environment, the workplace at the moment. Any claim of bullying or harassment or whatever in the workplace, obviously that needs to be taken seriously. It needs to be taken seriously. And it needs to be um, properly investigated. No question. If the matter goes further, finds its way to the police, again, uh, the complaint or complaints need to be taken seriously and, and uh, those complaints or that complaint needs to be thoroughly investigated. When I say thoroughly investigated, I mean, for example, if your work environment, uh, if, if, if there are 50 people there, all 50 people need to be spoken to and questioned, not three, not two the 50. So we live in dangerous times where investigations aren't as thorough as they not just should be, but as the law requires them to be, Aaron. For a person to be charged, there is a criteria. Certain things have to be, certain boxes have to be ticked. But what I'm getting at, I'm wrapping, I'll, I'll wrap this up. Those things need to be taken seriously. But I'll tell you this, an acquittal of an individual an individual who has been condemned prior to any formal case being heard, someone who's already been condemned prior to uh, a case even commencing, when that person survives 
being condemned prior to ever having his day in court or her day in court. They go through that process and they still come out innocent. Remember, I said any complaint needs to be taken seriously. I'll tell you what, an acquittal needs to be taken in this era we live in even more seriously because that person's life has already been demolished and they've survived the slings and the arrows and the hate and the hurt, extreme, unimaginable mental health damage. You go through the process and you come out an innocent man. Mm. Don't take that person, that man or that woman's acquittal lightly. Don't dismiss it. It needs to be taken seriously and respected. The other uh, balance in all of this is the media. Where do you stand in terms of the media? Do you think uh, even publishing allegations are wrong or is publishing allegations okay, but it's the way they do it? Again, I think it all gets back to the erosion of that legal fundamental, you know, that, that, that foundation stone of our justice system, which is the presumption of innocence. I understand the newspaper business. I understand that it's the newspaper business. Mm. But let's not lose sight of that thing that stops us collapsing into absolute anarchy. You've um, denied any wrongdoing in terms of the allegations and have been found not guilty by a court of law. What motivations drive a person to make false allegations, in your opinion? Do you know, I could theorise with you for hours on this. Um, and we see so many, beyond my, my case, all those years ago, we, we see so many cases, don't we? Mm. Vanessa and I, obviously, we had to go through the process of reading and listening to and viewing mountains of subpoenaed material. And, and I can't share that with you all to, today. Um, but let me give you an example of something that was shocking that, that, that I read or the, that, I, that I heard, listened to, had to listen to. A friend I worked with on that particular production is heard and seen talking about me in this way. Every time he comes on stage, every time he makes his entrance and the crowd is screaming and they're screaming and they stand up and they're cheering for him, for him, they're cheering for him. And I have to remind myself, they're not cheering for him. It's not him. It's the character. Wow. Now, let me just pause there. Let me just pause there. This was someone who expertly led me to believe she was my friend for months and months and months. Someone who tried to rejoin the show in 2017 and 18. That is terrifying, unbridled jealousy. And I'll just leave it at that. Mm. That, by the way, that's not Craig creating a story for you today. Vanessa and I had to listen to that. And this is an individual who was always perfectly pleasant and sunny to Vanessa as well. I'll just leave it at that. We could, we could theorise on motivations all day. All right. One uh, individual is, is still involved in a legal matter with a producer, but not directly with you. And because of that, I understand you cannot answer very specific questions about your allegations. But for the general Australian public that are thinking, 
wow, I've always loved Craig. I, I love the shows he's been in, the films he has made, the musicals he's he's been in and, and the music that he's made. These allegations seem troubling and, and I just don't know what to think. What would you say to those people? Well, I would just say, my dear friends, thank you for enjoying all that stuff I did over <laughs> so, so many years. Um, let me reassure you, um, um, yeah, there's been a little bump in the road. I'm speaking to you today as an innocent man found innocent in the criminal courts. Let me just remind you, too, that the criminal courts, they operate at the highest standard of law, the highest burden of proof. Mm. Uh, it's not about hearsay. It's about evidence. Um, so I sit here chatting to you today, humbled uh, that that you've been with me throughout my career. I am that guy you fell in love with. I'm that guy you enjoyed watching. He's still that guy and he can't wait to get out and do stuff with you again. Uh, bring it on. All right. I just want to also mention that your your partner, Vanessa, has has been with you since 2009. I believe so around the, the Pact of the Rafters time. Um, she's stood by your side through all of this. Um Tell me about Vanessa starting with the uh, meet through to the support that she's given you the last five years. Well, she was impossible not to fall in love with. <laughs> Just wonderful. She's a wonderful, wonderful girl. And, you know, uh, I, and I'm guessing uh, most of uh, your listeners, the fans of your show, wouldn't know this, that notorious run of Rocky Horror. Do you know Vanessa was with me on that tour? Every oh. day, every city would pop into the theatre pretty much every performance, you know, and we'd hang out in the dressing room and, and she would see all those other cast members. So obviously for her, the battles had extra significance because she she knows she knows her Craig isn't a bully and a, and a nasty pasty, but she was there. So she had a particular fire and ability to get her story out and mm. to, to stand proudly with me. But she just... Aaron, honestly, we should we should do a show just on Vanessa one night because you know she's an orchestral conductor, right? Ah. And you know my favorite thing in terms of we've been talking about my career as a performer. My favorite thing is to watch Nessie conduct a symphony orchestra. Best, <laughs> she's so good. Okay, I sit there. I would sit there years ago, and you know people would turn to me and go. Oh, isn't the conductor wonderful? And I'd go, isn't she? I mean, she's, she's the best. I, you know, like, so proud of her, her achievements. And she's so, she's just wonderful. That'd be a great duo podcast next time. Wouldn't it? Absolutely. Um, you've chosen to do SAS. We better get to that. Um, yeah, that's right. I knew there was something else. Yeah, so, something else. So the simple question is, why have you chosen to do SAS? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know whether to laugh or cry, Aaron. <laughs> um, you know, it was it was uh, quoted in a newspaper recently. I think I may have even mentioned it in one of the interviews for the you know interviews that are taped and, and end up making part of the the episodes of the show that I wanted to exorcise as an exorcism, exercise pain with pain. I just didn't realise how much pain <laughs> <laughs> I'd be in for on a daily basis. Um, but truly, that was that was my thinking, you know, to go in and 
what better way to, you know, spring clean the body, mind and soul uh, than to get out there. Although when I said yes, I didn't know we'd be in the middle of the Jordanian desert. But uh, <laughs> but uh, it was my thinking to really go in and treat it as like a, a admittedly brutal kind of cleansing, if that makes if that makes sense. Mm. Well, it certainly isn't Dancing with the Stars or I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. I mean, it's quite confrontational. Either this is the the best show to be on when your mental health has has taken a battering or could create a much a worse situation, you know, with people yelling in your face and asking you personal questions. Now, I won't reveal your exit from the series. Maybe you win, maybe you VW, maybe it's medical, maybe you get kicked out. But however it is that you leave, do you think that being on SAS positively or negatively helped your mental health? Oh, positively, without question. Hmm. Uh, without question. And I, I for that, those of our friends watching the show, um, they may conclude that I am crazy <laughs> saying <laughs> that. But really, Aaron, in a lot of ways, if you give yourself to the process wholly and solely, you understand that these are real military guys. Yeah. Putting you through this stuff. And there is a method to their madness, for want of a better expression. If you give yourself to it, it's kind of the best intense therapy um, you can experience. Mm. I know it sounds crazy, but for me at least, and I know for many of my friends, my, my fellow recruits, um, uh, they could they could attest to that as well. It it really is it really is wonderful therapy if you go with it, if you give yourself to it wholly and solely. Well, all the uh, celebrities welcoming, um, if that's the right word, or do you think some prejudged you when when you first met? Oh, I was blessed with just a wonderful group of people, no doubt about it. And and I think you've. You've probably got the sense chatting to me today that that I kind of I have no time for for BS, for, you know, <laughs> going through what we've gone through. Mm. Uh, you don't waste any energy bullshitting. I was really genuinely really blessed to um, uh, to be part of this particular group of people, and I, I think you can probably see even you know beyond how the producers edit the show, but amazingly, we really came together as a team very, very quickly. Mm. And and for me, you know, I, I obviously had anxiety about, you know, suddenly being thrust into a group of strangers and, you know, I went in with trust issues and, and all of the stuff that you would expect I might have anxiety uh, about. But immediately there was this tremendous sense of, you know, um, togetherness, like we're in this as a team, we're all here together, we all have different stories, we, you know. But I I was really, really blessed, really lucky to be included in this season with, with these people. Unlike your case where it was just uh, allegations and you were found not guilty, Cassie Sainsbury is a convicted 
uh, drug smuggler. How did you feel about her inclusion in the show? Um, and was there any elements of judgment or isolation from other contestants? Or or does everyone just think, you know, we're all not perfect and we're all here for our own reasons and, and just got on with it? I can honestly say, and, and Cassie and I, um, Cassie and I bonded almost instantly. Interesting though, Cassie, I didn't know Cassie's story. Um, and you might say, how did you not know? <laughs> the truth is I haven't watched an Australian news broadcast since the morning of January the 8th, 2018. Why would I? So I didn't know Cassie's story. Cassie didn't know what I had been through recently. But as two people, and I think it was probably night one, just, again, just for, for clarity, out in the desert in the in the Middle East, in the Jordanian desert, the sand, the sand is, it has a talcum powder element to it. I mean, it's, you know, that sand's been there from a time before Jesus wore his first pair of sandals. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. It's a harsh environment. And for some of my fellow recruits, those who are susceptible to asthma and allergies, they were having a terrible time I'm just breathing every day, let alone running 20 miles with 50 pound on your back and been having to do whatever. So I noticed Cassie just <clears throat> just breathing and just having um, physical issues beyond what we were re required to do on that first day that you've all seen. And she was sitting out on her own. It must have been the first night, I guess. And I, I'd been out chopping up firewood, kindling for everybody or whatever. And I, I saw her sitting there. I just went over and just to check on her. And I knew her as number one, you know, I was number nine. And we just shared, and, and I said to her, I, I said, how are, you, how are you getting on here? She goes, I'm just, I'm just finding I'm, I'm getting triggered all the time. And I, and, and I said, well, listen, you don't have to go into the wise you know, you don't have to, to give me your backstory, as it were. I'm someone who understands triggering. So when you're feeling triggered and you're struggling a bit, just just find old number nine, you know, uh, uh, and I'll be there for you. So I understand about being triggered. Well, we just, we just bonded as human beings. I didn't witness any standoffish, uh, judgy sort of behaviour toward toward Cassie while I was there, quite the opposite. Everyone was very supportive um, and uh, inclusive, you know, about very much making sure Cassie felt like she was part of the team. Um, I'm so impressed by her. Thankfully, we've remained uh, friends, you know. Uh, I was delighted to be able to introduce uh, Cassie to Vanessa a week or so ago. Um, we were doing some media stuff here in on the east coast, and uh, it was just it was lovely to see Nessie and Cassie together. Um, um, and she's a determined, strong, uh, wonderful gal. I, I can't say uh, enough good things about her. And uh, again, that was uh, you know uh, a friendship. The most unlikely friendship, <laughs> the guy yeah. who started out as Henry Ramsey and has, has had this bizarre journey, 
Cassie, who's had, you know, if you read Cassie's story in a novel, you wouldn't be able to put the, put the book down. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the blessings of doing SAS, beyond what it meant for me personally in terms of mental health and spiritually, you know, I've come out of it with, you know, some wonderful friendships. Um, I'll be forever grateful for that. Mm. It sounds like there was a real bonding between the cast. Was was there any friction this season? I mean, allegations, convictions aside, it, it just feels like that if you put that many different personalities in the room, something will fire. Uh, we've got a world champion boxer, an AFL Hall of Famer, but then there's also a Balinese princess, a couple of actors, and an OG bachelor. Surely there's some fire. Aaron, look at you with your winning smile. <laughs> Our friends at home can't see what I'm saying. He's <laughs> He's delivering this knockout gazillion watt Donny Osmond smile at me right now. And you know what, friends? I'm not going to give anything away about, about that because I want Aaron and all of you to keep watching right until the very last episode. But I can say this. You're right. It was a very, very, very diverse group um, and very different personalities. No doubt about that. Mm. Um, um, and it was a fascinating study just to observe my fellow recruits, but they were wonderful. I tell you what, though, I can speak of a particular fire. Do you want me to share this with you? Yes, please. Yeah, you do, don't you? Yeah, go on. It was just the fire of us all coming together and <laughs> achieving the un what you would think would be the undoable, the, the, the thing that, you know, we look at and go, there's no way we're going to be able to do this. And then we'd come together and there'd be this fire of the recruits of 2023. We are the recruits of 2023, the best team, the best you'll ever see. We will take on any enemy because we are the recruits of 2023. Yeah, heard <laughs> it first here, friends. Big news, big news. <laughs> All right. We're now halfway through the series um, and you seem to have breezed through so far. In fact, you're doing so well. There's not been a huge focus on you. You just seem to pass or otherwise do very well in every scenario. Don't tell me it's uh, too easy for you. Uh, well, do you know, if, uh, if it appears as though I'm breezing through it all, if people are looking at going, wow, look at old Craig, I mean, he's got to be, what is he? He's getting on now. He's got to be 30. Um, <laughs> 31. If it, if it appears as though I'm breezing through it, like some sort of uh, ageing superhero, well, thank you for that. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> but I've got to tell you, <laughs> no breezing through it, Aaron. Um, <laughs> um, I think probably for whatever reason I had a fearlessness in relation to the challenges, and I don't know why. Uh, I was just up for it. But in terms of appearing as though it was all pretty effortless for me, nothing could be the truth. <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm still rubbing Denko rub into certain points of my body six months down the track. Hmm. Well, in the first couple of episodes, um, you, you did have an interrogation with the, the DS. Um the interrogation would have been a lot longer than the edit. Um, you did seem quite defensive in one part. Um, has the last few years taken a toll on you to the point where you feel like you just need to fully defend yourself? You're right about those interrogations. They, they last a lot longer 
than what yeah. we see on the telly. And obviously the editors are going to grab those powerful and emotional moments. Um, if if I appear defensive, that wasn't my intention. I can honestly say you're just, whether it's me or whether it's Cassie or whoever, but certainly speaking for myself, you're just desperate to be heard. Mm. Um, it's not so much a case of, you know, being defensive about being asked the questions. You're just, you're just desperate to be heard. You don't know how long the, the interrogation is going to go for. And I think it's just, it was just the wanting to be heard because to this day, really, Aaron, Vanessa and I haven't, haven't been, haven't been heard um, in terms of what really played out in, in that criminal case. But, um, but the interrogations, you know, um, the DS, you know, the DS pull no punches. Ultimately, I guess they can't include everything because ultimately it will result in a five and a half hour episode. And I don't think even the biggest fans will sit through that. Mm. But um, but I can't speak highly enough about just, you know, Middleton and his merry men. Yeah, they're, they're scary and they're in your face in the moment, but they're good guys. I wanted to say you did particularly well in that drone scenario very calm and cool under pressure you were spot on with the instructions i guess i imagine that after these last few years your mind mind you know it might be a bit overloaded or scattered but your precision to detail was perfect how are you keeping cool under under significant pressure it's interesting you point out that particular exercise that particular operation I've never had to communicate in a war zone with a drone operator <laughs> at a remote location somewhere. Really? And, you know, and looking at a monitor that's just basically shades of green and then, you know, being mindful to keep my partner, you know, out in the field safe. I can only say, Aaron, that I've always had, and Nessa would be able to speak to this, I've always had just a really keen uh, eye for detail, but more than that, a super keen memory. So I'll give you an example of memory. Season one of Dr. Blake, particular scene. Yes, he was a big man, well over 200 pounds. Curiously, we found chalk dust on the inside of the trousers. Rocky Horror, oh, Shante, what charming underclothes you have. But here, put these surgical gowns on, they'll make you feel less vulnerable. Um, bugs. Yeah, Beckett, I'm onto it. It seems to be a mass spectrographic isotopic double diathermal diaphonoscope digitally encoded, and I think it's going to blow. Whatever it is, and I don't know where it comes from, but I just have an insane memory. So what helped me with that challenge, what you don't see on air, again, because it takes too much time, but Middleton explained to me wonderfully in, in great detail how to uh, communicate with the drone operator, how to um, communicate that you want the drone to, to move ahead if, if you need the drone to come back and, and go to the northeast, southwest, whatever. I just remember things. My memory is, Vanessa would say, freakish. Um, so my that, that, that helped enormously in a challenge like that. And just in terms of staying calm, Aaron, I've never... Had an unpaid so much as had an unpaid parking fine. Hmm. I don't think I even had a speeding fine. Having to 
go through the court process and you're sitting in court, when every fibre in your being at various points, you want to stand up and go, that's not, that's not how it was. That is not what happened. That's not what they said originally. You can't. Mm. You've got to contain it. You cannot emote. You cannot emote at all. So in terms of being able to rein it all in, keep the mind clear and focused, calmly scribble a note perhaps and give it to your legal team when you've picked up on something that perhaps they haven't. It's all contained. So suddenly when there are gunmen down the streets and your mates down there, you call upon that sense of calm. You recall all the stuff and off you go. It was terrifying though, you know, like, you can see the look on some of the recruits' faces as they face that challenge. Uh, I tell you, get the heart rate <laughs> down. You're obviously with the show twenty four seven, but we only really see a teaser um, of your experience with one day edited to just an hour or so. Can you tell me about what we're not seeing on the show? What what hasn't made the edit? Yes, I, I, I certainly could. But in true covert operative fashion, <laughs> I could tell you and then I'd have to kill you. All right, kill me. Tell me then kill me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm already too fond of you. <laughs> Not in this first interview together, maybe on the next one. But listen, I can't tell you all that stuff yet. I've got to get, we've got to get to the end of the season and then we'll reschedule another chat and I can say to you, now, between the train chase and the such and such, they did this. Because you're right, all jokes aside, the DS don't switch off just after we've done the, well, the urban drone op, mm. for example. You're right, they do not switch off. It is relentless. And I don't think... I haven't seen that the I'm watching the edit of the show as you guys are. I don't know how many bee stings are being included. I don't know how many desert push-ups on the top of some coyote roadrunner like desert pinnacle that we've got to climb up and do push-ups. I don't know how much of that stuff they're showing. But you're right, Aaron. It's relentless. It does not stop. You uh seem to make a going by the edit, uh, a little connection there with Anthony Mundine. Can you can you tell me more about that? Ah, uh, my brother Anthony. <laughs> do you know, how do I best describe the Anthony Mundine I've gotten to know? Well, I, actually, I'll start here. Anthony Mundine has the biggest heart, bigger than, bigger than the, the continent, the island that is Australia. He is so big-hearted. Brother Anthony would do anything for you. If he heard that you needed a hand, you needed help, as quick as he was on the footy field, he'd be there to help you in an instant. And yes, he's been portrayed in a particular way over so many years. And I guess that's the image most people think of when they think of the name Anthony Mundine. That's not who the guy is, Aaron, truly. He is, uh, again, he was, he was another one of the blessings for me being part of this particular group of people in this particular season. Yeah. Um, and he calls me, he calls me Big Daddy Mac. How can you not love a bloke who calls you Big Daddy Mac? <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Regardless of, of where you came, because um, we don't want to uh, have spoilers, 
What what did you ultimately get out of the SAS experience, um, holistically speaking? That's such a good question, and it's almost its own episode as well. And I and I'm I'm only half kidding when I say that. I got so much out of it. The big one for me was just uh, learning to trust people again. Mm. You know, uh, to go through what Nessie and I went through, really uh, at the hands of people who expertly led us to believe they were our friends, not just for a week, not just for a month, for years. That has a devastating effect on your heart and uh, your soul and your mental health. So to go through the SAS experience with Middleton and his merry men, and but uh, the recruits particularly, and to really be in a group of people where people have got your back and, and people aren't being judgy and and. And here's the thing about SAS. Perhaps I can best sum it up this way, Aaron. Um, nothing forces you to be more in the moment than when you do have to take on some of these ops, these, these tasks, these challenges. And it's all about moving forward, being in the moment and continuing to move forward, whether you're Cassie, um, whether you're Stephanie, whether you're Brother Anthony, whether you're Craig. And as Brother Anthony says it's not a case of whether or not you know you find yourself landing on the canvas it's not about the knockdown it's about the comeback it's about getting back up it's not about how hard you can hit it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward Mm. so being in the moment maintaining that momentum and and believe me middleton and his merry men are drilling it into you all the time keep going keep going Keep going, number nine. <laughs> um, and also for me personally, and perhaps if you ever get a chance to speak to Cassie, she would say the same thing. Many of them would, but certainly for me, trust, trusting people again. That was a big one. That was a big one for me. All right. As I mentioned earlier, you you are doing super well. Surely a, a front runner to pass the course. I said no spoilers before, but can you just put us all out of our misery and tell us if you passed? You see, there you go with the whole Donny Osmond smile again. <laughs> you know, seriously, and it doesn't matter. You can put your finger over your teeth like that. <laughs> I love that, but Aaron, as, as much as I love you and I want to tell you, I can't. You're going to have to watch to the end. That's all right. I would have edited it out anyway. Channel 7 would kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and and me. And, yeah, and you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, Look, as we wrap up this podcast at the uh, four-hour and ten-minute mark, no, it's not that long, but <laughs> um, where to now for Craig McLaughlin? Where to now? Well, in terms of of uh, being active and being creative, um, what can I tell you without giving too much away at this point? Well, uh, I'm three episodes into shooting a new show, uh, three eps of ten. It's been tremendously uh, satisfying and a whole lot of fun. I can't tell you what it's about because the producers will kill me. Um, I can tell you, though, that the plan is for it to be released in 2024, which is great news. I have a couple of online things uh, coming out soonish as well. One of them, um, I'm, listen, I give myself holy and solely to whatever I'm doing. But I have a thing coming out called Craig's 21 Day Challenge, which is, uh, which obviously has a uh, 
uh, a strong mental health element. A little bit of physical stuff in there, but um, Craig's 21-day challenge, that'll be coming your way very soon. And a couple of other things. Um, I, I should probably mention too, Aaron, um, you know, we could talk for hours and hours and hours about the the uh, the court case that I went through. I've, I'm aware of a, of a podcast that's coming out, I believe it's early next year. I, I don't know the dates, but there's a podcast called Acquitted. And I know their first season focuses on what they call the Craig McLaughlin case. And I'm aware that they they uh, go to great lengths to explain how the criminal courts work in Australia, particularly in the state of Victoria. They examine um, what is required to charge a person and how increasingly the criteria isn't being met and people are just being charged willy-nilly and what that results in, the ripple effect. It's not like throwing a pebble in a pond. It's like, it's like detonating the atom bomb above that pond. Mm. You know, the ripples, each ripple is a tsunami wave. And they particularly focus, obviously, on 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 my case. Um, I would urge um, I would urge people to check it out. It's just called Acquitted. Um, I haven't written and produced it. It's not, you know, so don't think it's it's Craig's one sided <laughs> tale of of mm. the system and all that goes with it. Um, it's essential listening. So yeah, I I twenty twenty four. Uh, the show, some of the online stuff that's coming up that obviously I'm, I'm very committed to. Uh, and uh, I've fulfilled one dream, which is, you know, to come on your show today. That's been wonderful. I can't thank you enough. <laughs> so, so it's it's all good. And look, there's that smile again, friends. You know well, I was saying? waiting for you to do that smile after what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> look, I, ideally... Where would you like to, to be in the next two to three years in terms of your personal life and career? Wow, you really do save the best question for last, don't you? That's even better than the Minogue question at the top of the show. <laughs> um, uh, all jokes aside, you know, Aaron, so much has come into focus, so many lessons learned over these last almost six years. Uh, Vanessa and I, our friends and family, one of the big things is you realise how important your health is, your physical health, your mental health. So I just look forward to to uh, good mental health and, and good physical health for Nessie and I to kind of make up for a stressful half dozen years that I, I, I wouldn't wish on anyone. You know, because with good health upstairs and generally speaking, um, you've got a real shot at putting a smile on your dial when you're feeling physically good and, and mentally good. And a smile and a giggle and a chuckle and a laugh, that's that's great everyday medicine. In terms of uh in terms of career, um, I'm just look looking forward to getting back into stuff. I you know, there's we're talking to a couple of producers about going back and doing a show in London, which is very exciting to get back on the stage over there again, um, you know, and I have family and friends uh, over there. That would be lovely. Um, uh, uh, and you know what? We we spoke about uh, Dr. Blake earlier. Um, 
I, I'm so proud of what we produced over those six years. Um, when the numbers are crunched, the guys who do all the statistics on those things, they, those mad mathematicians tell me that in real terms, the Dr. Blake mysteries was most, uh, in, in terms of consistency, the highest rating drama over that period of time in the ABC's history. That's something to be really proud of. What's amazing is that it continues to sell around the world. Vanessa and I, Vanessa and I, um, are just inundated uh, in a good way, inundated with letters and emails from people from you know New York to Stockholm to you name it, who are tuning into the Doctor Blake mysteries. In a perfect world, because I'm only just catching up in age and real age to the age Lucian's supposed to be. So wouldn't it be wonderful to whack yeah. on the old three-piece suit, um, drop the voice down a couple of tones, round it up with some, you know, Anglo BBC sounding uh, speech patterns and go and solve the odd um, murder mystery. Um, and I say that because I get, <laughs> as I say, inundated with people writing and saying, can we have Dr. Blake back now? If it was in my power solely, I'd make it happen for all of those wonderful fans. So we'll just have to watch this space, I think, Aaron. Well, that would be amazing. Craig, uh, thank you for agreeing to do this podcast. I understand that it's uh, under difficult circumstances, but I appreciate you being forthright with everything. I wish you the best of luck on SAS and everything else that's coming ahead. Thank you for joining me here at TV Central. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm so glad we managed to finally <laughs> to finally do it. And I so much look forward to our follow-up chat. There you go. I'm laying down the gauntlet. I expect a follow-up chat with you at some point. Absolutely. You are welcome back anytime. Well, that was Craig McLaughlin, a current star of SAS Australia on Channel 7. The show has just five episodes remaining. You can catch the show on 7 or watch the uncensored episodes on 7+. Craig McLaughlin has been a massive contributor to the Australian arts and entertainment industry, and the purpose of this podcast was to celebrate that contribution, have him freely speak on all issues within legal bounds, and to find out about his next stages of life. I would like to give an extra special thank you to Vanessa, Craig's partner, for assisting with this podcast. Well, that's it for this podcast. For all the latest news, streaming info, ratings, TV guides and podcasts, head to tvcentral.com.au. But for now, I'm Aaron Ryan. Thanks to Craig McLaughlin. Bye for now.